And now it's time for the Ask Dr. Tommy Show, featuring health news, opinion, and insight from Wesley Chapel's concierge medicine physician, Dr. Tommy McElroy. And thank you for joining us today. This is the Ask Dr. Tommy Show. I'm Dr. Tommy McElroy, and I am a concierge medicine physician in Wesley Chapel, Florida. And uh, one of the questions I had recently was about uh, vitamins. Uh, a friend of mine asked me, he said, what vi- or she asked me, what vitamins should I be on to help with energy and weight loss? And that's kind of an open-ended question because there is no vitamin for that. But there is, uh, there are things that you should do. The first thing you should do is have a, a physical exam that is more than the cursory ACA-compliant meaningful use exam that lasts about seven minutes where you fill out an hour's worth of paperwork and spend an hour waiting and see the doctor for seven minutes. So you should not have that type of exam. Uh, you should have a real physical exam, and then the doctor can go over all the different things that are potentially wrong with you and then talk with you about a structured way to lose weight and have energy. However... One of the things I will say that is uh, vitamin D is so common that I see it that certainly a vitamin D test is always in order if you're if you're feeling tired, even more so in my experience than vitamin B12 or, or B6, which are you know the ones that people normally think of for energy. B12 can certainly help with energy, but in my experience that I see, uh, a lot of people who are deficient on D uh, can can really improve their uh, um, fatigue level or energy level by replacing D only with 5,000 IUs a day and then it's, it's amazing. Two weeks, uh, you're back to normal. And so we're speaking about, uh, you know, non-compliant ACA, non-compliant uh, medical care. And so I have a great privilege of having Mr. Richard Ralston on, who is the Executive Director for Americans for Free Choice in Medicine. And uh, uh, Mr. Ralston, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I'm um, pretty good shape. Glad to be here. Thank you very much. Um, one of the things that we were talking about before we came on the air was, you know, what is the what is the reason for having your organization? Your organization has a very uh, niche type of reason for that, and, is, and tell us about that. Well, it was founded in in '93, I think, uh, in the early '90s by our chairman, who's an ophthalmologist, uh, in response to Hillary Care. Uh, that was the impetus behind it to hold off uh, Hillary Care. I wouldn't say that that we did that, but, uh, but we contributed to the effort to prevent that. And uh, it was a uh, at least a short-term uh, tactical success, but uh, not a long-term strategic one. I became involved about 15 years ago, and before then and since then, our emphasis is to focus on the primary questions which should under be the foundation for healthcare policy. What is the proper political system, uh, including individual rights and limited government, and what is the proper moral foundation for healthcare? And never lose sight of that. During the debate on Obamacare in Congress, no one even discussed, no one brought up the discussion of what are the rights of physicians. Are physicians right. in a national resource like parks or petroleum or whatever whose services we can just dispose of as we wish, as the government wishes? Uh, or do they have an inherent right to manage their own medical practices and and patients have a right to... Uh, use their services as they see fit over time, or is it, is it all a matter of uh, I don't, 
it's hard to discern what the Food and Drug Administration was founded for over 100 years ago. Uh, but we've arrived at the point where no one can get well uh, without government permission. Yeah, so back to your point about what are the rights of the physician, I don't think during that at all there was even really a discussion of what are the rights of the patient other than what are the things that we can give the patient on our us being the government? What are those things? Those things that we can give the patient, and then that becomes their rights. But there's really there's really no discussion about inherent rights of either of those two parties. Freedom or choices to find the best care they can, uh, and not just accept what the government decides to hand out. Uh, what are what are the things that you know we struggle with, and we do concierge medicine. And I do concierge medicine, and but in the membership medicine, I guess you call it membership medicine, includes concierge medicine, direct care, where physicians pay. I'm sorry, physicians are paid directly by patients. Is there's this there's this discussion about is that fair or not? Is it fair that uh, some are allowed to let's say get outside of the system, so to speak, and then pay a physician directly because they can quote afford it? And whether that whether that not that is fair to the rest of the people who choose not to do that? What do you think about that? Well, that's a horrendous argument. I think. Those developments are encouraging. Freedom is a choice uh, in terms of the the best means physicians can devise for providing quality care and the best means that patients can can find for getting quality care, uh, not the decisions of a massive, distant, and indifferent bureaucracy deciding what everyone's care should be and how to get it. Mm. Uh, and there are... And there are many layers and many varieties of how that can happen. Just freedom means choices and giving people options rather than a uh, cookie-cutter, government-imposed system for all. The uh, I work for an organization, uh, those, uh, two of whose scholars, the executive, just published a book called, uh, last month called uh, Equal is Unfair, is the title of the book. Mm-hmm. And uh, it applies to health care as to other things. That the government imposed equality of everything for everybody uh, is inconsistent with a free society. Uh, we we aren't we're equal only in our access to rights uh, uh, and and nothing else. And uh, that so we don't. We, we get the best health care we can find and the best health care that can be provided, uh, not a government bureaucracy. Yeah, and I think one of the things that, you know, we're talking about is, you know, what people define as equality and is equality what someone can give you. And then, you know, the argument against freedom is actually the argument against the free market. You know, I'll quote Milton Friedman here. It says, underlying most arguments against the free market is a lack in a belief of freedom itself. And I think that's a lot of the things that we run into now is not only that do they don't think that they should choose it for themselves, but you should not be able to choose it for yourself. And uh, this is uh, Ask Dr. Tommy Shaw. I'm on with uh, Mr. Richard Ralston, who is the Executive Director of Americans for Free Choice in Medicine. And you can go to their website at afcm.org and learn more about them. And then when we return, we'll talk a little bit more about uh, some of the moral undergirdings of what is uh, the doctor-patient relationship. This Ask Dr. Tommy Show. We'll be right back. Hi there. This is Dr. Tommy McElroy. You didn't go to medical school so you could fill out paperwork. Got into medicine because you wanted to help people. You want to make a difference. You want to heal and connect with your patients. Atlas MD is the EMR that will help you get to where you always wanted to go. 
Learn how to transition your practice to direct care and learn more about Atlas MD EMR at atlas.md. That's A-T-L-A-S dot M-D. And this is the Ask Dr. Tommy Show. Uh, this is Dr. Tommy McElroy, and I'm on with Mr. Richard Ralston, who is the Executive Director of Americans for Free Choice in Medicine. And uh, we were talking during the break about what are what are the, some of the things that, you know, as a as a populace, as a, as a voting public that we can do, you know, either legislatively or judicially to try to get back some of the um, freedoms that we enjoyed previously uh, before the Affordable Care Act restricted severely the access to physicians and uh, patients' uh, ability to get good quality medical care for an affordable price. And we were talking about, you said there's a Supreme Court decision in Canada, of all places, which basically uh, took back some of those uh, freedoms or gave back some of those freedoms to uh, the, the, the populace. Tell us about that. Well, in a very limited way, the, uh, there's an excellent organization in Vancouver called the Fraser Institute, and although they lost the battle for uh, what they call Medicare half a century ago, they've been very diligent and resistant in documenting what's going on. And they publish regular studies which show province by province uh, how long people wait to see a specialist uh, and how long if they see a specialist, how, they, how long they wait for various kinds of treatment. Uh, and it's actually, uh, in terms of government powers, one of the worst systems in the world. In Great Britain, for example, the National Health Service, uh, private health care is still legal. Uh, there are people, physicians in private practice, and individuals can choose to use those physicians rather than the National Health Service. And I saw a statistic a few years ago that I think it said that 37% of the physicians employed by the National Health Service in Great Britain, Britain buy private insurance, hmm. uh, which was interesting, I think, uh, so, when they're given so, freedom. But in, in, in Canada, they're not. But they, they, some people continue, bless them, to fight for their freedom and choices. Uh, and uh, they, that one, that one little narrow Supreme Court decision, uh, which people that weren't getting the care uh, were going to court, and the court just said that uh, access to a waiting list is not access to health care, which is a good right. point, which, so the peop- which we need here. So the people in this Canada were waiting a long time for medical care, and yet they had this card that says, hey, you have medical care because you have coverage, which is something that we hear here is, oh, coverage has been increased, everyone's covered, blah, blah, blah. Well, coverage does not equal medical care. A card does not give you access to a doctor. A card does not allow you to uh, have your child seen when your child's sick. And a card certainly doesn't allow you to have timely service if you need a, a surgery or something like that. And so ob- the- obviously a, uh, a veteran who was wounded in combat <laughs> right. is put in a long line or put on a waiting list uh, until he's dead. Yeah, and one of the things that I've been an advocate for, at least in print, is that of all people, VA, uh, veterans, and uh, senior citizens, Medicare, should they not be allowed to exercise their freedom? Why is it that if they've, quote, paid into the system, as it were, whether through their military service or through their taxes that they paid uh, prior in their working years, if that's 
their right, so to speak, of having medical care, then why is their right then suddenly divvied out by a bureaucrat? Why can't they just use that money that they're supposedly there to go there and, and choose a physician on their own? Why, why do you think that is in, a, in, in our society that we allow that restriction? Because uh, government health care, whether it's, say, Veterans Administration, uh, is designed by politicians and over time tends to serve the interests of politicians and their spoils system. But do you think that the, the citizens don't realize that, or does that not, I mean, it comes to, the, comes to my mind immediately. Do you think the, the majority of the, the voting public just, that doesn't even come into their mind? Do you, I think it comes back to, you know, Milton, again, Milton Friedman. It says you should judge a program on its um, outcomes, not its, mer- not its intentions. So, you know, there's a famous road that's paved with good intentions. And so is it that, that the citizens have such a, a belief in their government, a benevolent government, that the intent is that, well, they want, the, they want the people in the VA to have good access to medical care. They want the senior citizens to have good access to medical care. And because they don't, that's, that doesn't matter. The intent's more, imper- more important. Do you think that's what they actually think? Well, they, they're, they're continually pummeled with uh, government propaganda that they have rights to everything. Uh-huh. Uh, but it, but uh, it's, if you push on it, at some level, they will recognize that it isn't delivered uh, and and will uh, rise up to do something about it. Certainly, say in the Veterans Administration, the first and best reform, uh, reform to that, it's not the end of the story, but the best reform would be vouchers. Uh, no veteran should have to wait uh, and, and give them vouchers so they could get health care wherever they can find it. Absolutely. I would love to see them in my and office. And they would go to your office. Yeah, I would totally waive the concierge fee. I wouldn't make them sign up for concierge medicine. I'd say, look, if you're a veteran and you need to come see me for for a knee injection or whatever, please bring your voucher. Come in, and I would just love to do that, just to give them a way out. And more convenient. Now, if you go to, you know, I like to see an analysis someday of the of the location of VA hospitals, the big facilities, how many of them were built and still exist in congressional districts, mm-hmm. congressional chairmen. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Were, were those facilities built where the patients are? Right. Or for politicians wanted the construction? Right. Well, that's a factor that comes into it when the when the government is providing these things. The uh, and uh, and the, you know it's like Dickens's novel Bleak House uh, about Great Britain when when generations were spent in probate. Uh, if you were left something in a well, you'd be l- lucky if it uh, cleared probate for your children, let alone uh, let alone you. And uh, you know, a classic example of that uh, is this uh, VA administrator. They said, "Well, Veterans Affairs is like Disney World. People are staying long, long lines and winding around." And it's what's important. We're not going to measure how long a veteran waits for service. What's important is the quality of the experience, oh. like a Disney World. <laughs> uh, so the, the, the people never ask. It's an interesting take on it. Yeah, how how long how how long they're waiting? 
Now, whatever the quality of the experience is, the VA puts people on waiting lists until they're dead. That is true. Uh, Unfortunately, that is true. And uh, another horrendous example is the Food and Drug Administration. A lot of people think that the Food and Drug Administration is there to help them and that the Food and Drug Administration has this ability just to make sure all the drugs are clean and healthy and and pass uh, legislation. let them go through their process in a timely manner, but that's not true. It takes a long time, and sometimes people suffer because of that. Yeah, they suffer and die. The the most horrendous examples are uh, terminally ill patients waiting for treatment and procedures or for medications and drugs. The best case you can make for the, for the uh, VA is safety, that they would make sure that it does, drugs do no harm. Mm-hmm. that they don't injure. Well, they don't do that very well, but the, uh, that's the best case you can make for what they do. Uh, mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't help a lot, again, if people die while they're waiting for the drug to be approved. The FDA feels that their duty is to uh, protect the dead. <laughs> uh, and uh, so uh, these absurd waits for terminally ill people. But worse than that is there are two things. <laughs> One, uh, they made it so expensive to clear a drug that they add hundreds of millions of dollars to the cost of developing a drug. Yeah, and then the uh, pharmaceutical companies are the ones that are dragged over the fire for being uh, greedy. That's right. doesn't help either. But the second big thing they do, it's one thing to say phase one Food and Drug Administration, but then they try to achieve omniscience on the effectiveness of a drug. Uh, so tell us about, what, do you, what does that mean? Well, infinite knowledge everything to know about it. Now, in the simplest circumstances, it's pretty difficult to project how any drug will be respond, how safe it will be in any dose, at any time, in any combination, with any number of any dose of any other drug. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't learn all of that. You can't achieve all of that. So there's no certainty on effectiveness. But uh, the best measure of effectiveness is use. <laughs> Let the physicians and patients by use determine the effectiveness. If they get better, it must be working. Uh, right. Rather than the VA says, no, wait three three more years while we guarantee whether this works or not. Right. Yeah, so allow it to actually be used in the market, and then maybe that will save some more lives instead of uh, just waiting indefinitely for uh, the, the perfect answer. That's right. Uh, this is the Ask Dr. Tommy Show, and uh, we're talking about uh, medicine and, and how the government is sometimes or oftentimes not a, a real big ally for patients and medicine. And then when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about what are the, some of the things on the horizon that maybe we can um, look forward to to help uh, make medicine back to where it used to be, where uh, doctors and patients can interact on a more meaningful basis without all this uh, bureaucracy in the middle. Uh, this is Ask Dr. Tommy Show. We'll be right back. Everyone, there's no doubt you have questions about what happens in concierge medicine. More specifically, what would it look like if you did something similar too? I want to tell you about a gathering place where you can find answers to those questions and others and learn just what exactly these types of doctors do. On August 12 and 13 in Atlanta, Georgia, the 2016 Concierge Medicine Assembly hosted by Concierge Medicine Today is a place where you can be creative for a few short hours Explore those what-if questions and interact 
with other physicians kneecap to kneecap who've rescued their career and live to talk about it. To learn more, visit conciergemedicineassembly.com. We hope to see you in Atlanta this fall. Uh, this is Ask Dr. Tommy Show, and uh, I'm on with Richard Ralston. And uh, we were talking during the break about his memories of uh, basically, you know, what medical care used to be like. And I think there's a lot, there's this perception that medical care is a right. And by that meaning that it's something that you're born with is a, what I believe a right is. Uh, so the freedom, to, freedom of speech, freedom of expression, freedom of associate. But medical care to me is not a right because that means if it is a right, then someone's got to give that to you. And it's usually going to be somebody who is uh, in Washington, D.C., or, or your far-flung state capital, and they're going to give that to you. So I think a lot of the, the concern about medical care being a right is misplaced. I think medical care is not a right. Uh, food is not a right. Clothing is not a right. But all those are, can be widely acceptable or widely accessed if allowed. And I think if we remove some of the bureaucracy between uh, medical care and the patient, there will be no more uh, hard-to-access uh, uh, health care than there is hard to access food or um, or shelter that we have in this uh, wonderful country we live in now. Uh, what is your recollection of what what you what was medicine like when you were growing up? Well, the, the thing I remember the most was as a kid in Kansas City in elementary school uh, is when I had a cold or the flu or something or measles. Uh, I I well remember. Uh, family doctor driving up in his car coming to the door with his black bag wearing a fedora mm-hmm. and uh, uh, coming in and seeing me taking my temperature asking some questions uh, leaving a few pills or mm-hmm. other necessary medication and he was done and on the, in his way out the door my mother handed him a $5 bill and that was yeah. it well, he didn't have to write up and do uh, CPT codes and ICD-9 codes and submit it, and then she pay a copay and then find out if it was authorized or not and if he gave her out the right number of pills. So none of that happened back then. No, 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 no uh, 160,000 codes to pick from Right. Uh, uh, for doing that. Now, that was just unacceptable <laughs> to the uh, people that want to rule our lives. They couldn't allow that. Uh, so, ho- so when did the change start happening? Well... The, 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 the two big things were in the 40s or during World War II when the government, when everyone's uh, j- jobs were basically forced, and you know, half the country was in the military, uh, uh-huh. and uh, employers, industries couldn't pay to really attract and get people, that the government said, well, you can provide insurance, uh-huh. and it won't be it won't be taxable, so people can get tax-free insurance. So that was the birth of this uh, employer provided, which we take as you know, as 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 natural as the sun coming up every day that the the employer is going to provide you health insurance. Yes. Yeah, so but the genesis of that was nothing other than this was a way to attract qualified candidates to the workforce. That's right. So that created third-party payers that divorced mm-hmm. the provision of the service from the people paying for the service. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Uh, that made a big difference in terms of cost inflation. The second biggest change, there were many more things going on, but was in the 60s when Congressman Wilbur Mills and the Ways and Means Committee put through both uh, Medicare and Medicaid. Right. Uh, which, so if you go back 60 or 70 years, the government was providing 
three or four percent of healthcare, mm-hmm. and now they're providing or paying for more than half of healthcare. Uh, and that was a change. So of course the government paying for things doesn't make it cost more, does it? No, and you know Milton Friedman uh, has this great point about the four ways to pay for medical care or four ways to pay for anything. And you can pay for something yourself; you'll get the most value for your buck. You can pay for something for somebody else where you're very concerned about price, not so much about quality. You could pay for yourself with someone else's money where you're, you want to get as much money as possible and you don't really care about the value as long as you expend all of your <clears throat> your resources. Like if you go on a lunch and you have an expense account with your, your, your um, company, you're going to spend up to the one cent below your expense account. And then the fourth way to spend money is you spend someone else's money on somebody else. And that's the way that the government spends money. So Medicare um, is paid for with someone else's money and for someone else, and that's the most inefficient way to spend money. And there was a lot more charity care, if you go back 50 years, in terms of right. physicians providing some services free. And, and I think they uh, or hospitals, uh, charity hospitals. Yeah, yeah. There's a very number. There's a large number of hospitals that were aptly named charity hospital. Yeah, and so that's been destroyed. Uh, you know. Because and that's we're not, we're not going to provide health care. We're just going to give everyone a right to it. Right. And I think that's a, a, a it's kind of a, a self-centered way for, you know, they talk about self-interest in the market and how that's, you know, some people say that's not good. But what about the self-interest of the government? Does the government have self-interest in uh, squeezing out charities, uh, squeezing out private payers so then they can accumulate client constituencies that uh, rely on them for, you know, anything from uh, – Food to clothing is that is that good for the government to have self interest then? Because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people don't think the government has self interest. It's just benevolent. That's a good way to do it. Uh, if you go back to the decline and collapse of the Roman Republic two thousand years ago, uh, a chief contributor was the senatorial spoil system mm-hmm. that everyone had clients and and everyone had sponsors. Uh, and then you know divided the society into those competing groups, and but you know run from people uh, who say you shouldn't be interested in money uh, uh-huh. because they're interested in power uh-huh. and and their spoil system and their empire and their political influence, uh, and uh, so it becomes a matter of how does healthcare help the politicians keep their hands on the throttle. So what do you think is a how do we you know going from you know what we've examined now and what we have what are the what are the steps needed to make sure that uh, we can not lose grasp of what used to be uh, a very um, a sacred relationship between doctor and patient how do we retrieve that now that there's so many forces aligned against that in small ways as we anything you can do provide more choices and alternatives to people and stop eliminating them uh, so that's 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 the primary way to go about it so uh, you know kind of an underground method now it won't be change until people's um, ideas change right. uh, until people realize what their rights are and care about them and, and I think, try to preserve them. I think one of the ways that that happens is when there's a, a dramatic change. So when suddenly you can't see your doctor for six months or six weeks or, or suddenly there is no 
medicine on the shelves <clears throat> because of uh, FDA um, shortage or FDA um, bureaucracy or something like that. I think that's when people that they hit that pain point. But I think prior to that too is if we can do as much as we can to educate people about it and, and at least turn their give them an alternative viewpoint, which is not the one of what is given to you through your um, uh, Washington D.C. channels. I think that's an important way is to expose people to different alternative ways of thinking about things. Correct. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Ralston, for coming on. And um, again, if you are interested in learning about um, more about free markets and, and medicine and uh, how the, um, the, uh, the, the philosophy of, of what an individual should be in relation to uh, the government and how you as an individual have rights, I would encourage you to go to Americans for Free Choice in Medicine. That's at afcm.org. And uh, there you can learn. There's a, a wealth of knowledge uh, or wealth of uh, information there. Um, thank you, Mr. Rossner, for coming on, and I hope you have a, a great rest of your day. You're welcome. Good program. Thank you. And uh, this is the Ask Dr. Tommy Show. If you would like to hear more Ask Dr. Tommy Show, please go to AskDrTommy.com. And also you can listen to us on iTunes. And until next time, bye-bye. Thank you for joining us today. For more show news and information, go to AskDrTommy.com. And be sure to follow Dr. Tommy on Facebook at Echelon Health and on Twitter at Tapa Direct Care. To learn more about Echelon Health Concierge Medicine Practice, visit Echelon Health online at tampadirectcare.com.